Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Language A to Z. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 59, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, fellas. Hey, boys. How you doing? I'm doing fine over here. Splendid. Thank you. What do we have today? Well, it's up to Ben, huh? Ben, what do you got <laughs> it for is us? indeed. Okay, I got a new word for you. It's a good one. Yeah? You know, it's boring if I just give you uh, an actual definition of this word. That would be no fun at all. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a fake definition. Yeah, like the dictionary game, Balderdash. Or, Ben, like the PBS weekly evening quiz show, Know-It-All, that I produced and uh, failed to get on television <laughs> about 20 years ago. But, oh, okay, that's a ahead. shame. I would have loved to have seen that one. So we're bringing it back. This is the know-it-all segment. <laughs> okay, so this is a punny definition. So, you know, like last time we had pumpernickel, uh, a punny definition of that might be a metal used for a fire truck, pumpernickel. That's the idea here. Okay, someone who is easily duped by a fortune teller. Of Wolo. <laughs> easily <laughs> duped. Are you saying that Mike is easily duped? Okay, so it's probably sucker and and uh, you're on the right sucker track. Seer sucker. Hey, what seer. is it? Seer sucker. Right. You guys make a great solving team. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bob starts it off, and then Mike finishes it off. That's yeah, cool. Bob sets me up nicely. <laughs> you notice how uh, hipsters have uh, taken seer sucker and put it on real tight, and <laughs> turned it into from a comfortable, loose-fitting summer fabric into a constraining nightmare in every respect. (laughs) Yeah, you think of seersucker as being nice and loose-fitting, casual for the summer. The whole point of seersucker is that it breathes and that you can wear it when it's hot out, so it seems to defeat the purpose if you're uh, being hipsterish with it that way. Gosh, seersucker. I mean, I guess I could try to pinpoint a time, or at least a century. I I would all Probably right. say 1800s. Bob, any any thoughts on it? Eh, uh, this is a wild guess, but I would say 1783 in uh, the Caribbean as part of the triangular trade of ribbed cotton, molasses, and uh, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I have no well, idea. Well, <laughs> that's awfully precise. That would have fit better, I guess, for our grog episode. Yeah, but... I think actually probably would have. <laughs> Although, you know, thinking of that triangle trade is important in sort of thinking of the history of how these textiles moved around. But the textiles go back a bit earlier than that. And they start off somewhere where we get a lot of textiles historically 
originating. Well, getting closer. India. Right India. continent, at least. India. India, indeed. The subcontinent has given us so many types of fabric, which were then, you know, later taken over by the uh, British very often. And thanks to the Industrial Revolution, they end up getting made in textile mills instead of the uh, handmade ways that they might have been made in India when the East India Company was first trading there in the 17th century. So a little bit earlier is when this whole textile trade really gets going. And seersucker is part of that whole world of textiles coming from the East. And a lot of them had very interesting names. So wait, are you saying that seersucker has Hindi origins? It passes through Hindi, it's true. Yeah, it does. Passes through, that implies that it starts somewhere else. Let's go to the beginning. Seersucker... What language are we talking about at the very root of this word? Well, it's a language that was very influential in the Indian subcontinent at that time, and that language is Persian. Mm. Persian was sort of the courtly language. It was really important if you go back to that era where you have the Mughal Empire, great Muslim empire at the time in India, and Persian was the prestige language. And so a lot of words come in from Persian into languages like Hindi and Urdu. And then when the British show up with their East India Company and they want to start trading in things like textiles, they picked up these words and then anglicized them. So another example would be pajama. That actually originates from a Persian word, one word pa meaning leg, and the other one jama meaning clothing. Leg clothing is just meant pants, basically. <laughs> leg clothing. <laughs> well, I have a new term of art that I'm going to employ for the rest of my life. <laughs> put on you your know, leg clothing. <laughs> I'm just a man like you, and I put on my leg clothing one leg at a time. Well, my son's pajamas have little feet on them. Mm, well, yes. they're, they're foot clothing, Mike. <laughs> yeah, they're foot clothing. <laughs> Wait, so that word, as we know it, the whole word seersucker, that existed in Persian in the 1600s? Yeah, in a little different form. The original Persian form of it was sheer o shakar. And the o sound in the middle there is just a conjunction like and. So it's joining two words, sheer and shakar. It sounds almost Gaelic or something. <laughs> well, the shear might be unfamiliar to you, but we have a word in English which actually comes from that Persian word shakar along a different route than uh, seersucker. Can you guess what word came down to us from Persian shakar? Something that sounds like it? Mm, chakra? <laughs> uh, Ravi Shankar. <laughs> shaker. Shaker, no. Shimmy, 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 shake. <laughs> Bob, it's early in the morning still, but you're drunk right now, aren't you? <laughs> you know, I don't think you can get drunk from a handful of Bloody Marys. It's just a <laughs> breakfast food. All right, you haven't gotten it yet. I'll tell you that the word that we have is also an important product in um, international trade that was brought from the East. Sugar. Sugar. There you go. Sugar. Sugar is uh, one of those well-traveled words that I love so much, uh, kind of like orange that we had a while back. When it passes through lots of different languages before it gets to English, you can actually go all the way back to Sanskrit with it, sharkara, actually originally meant grit or gravel, which kind of gives you a sense of what sugar was <laughs> like back in the old days before we had the nice white powder. How coarse was it? 
Very coarse, very gravelly, yes. I mean, this is coming from the sugar cane, and those traditional methods of extracting the sugar would leave you with uh, something that was pretty gravelly, apparently. So how does sugar get into your pants? <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But first, first, let me just tell you <laughs> that you I have go... been asked that question <laughs> so many times. <laughs> we'll get to the sugar in your pants. But first, the sugar part starts off in Sanskrit, goes to Persian, then goes to Arabic, then goes to Old Italian, then goes to Medieval Latin, then goes to Old French, and then finally in Middle English we get sugar. Wow. Yeah. What a circuitous route to English. Yeah. So this word that we now have in English as sugar goes back to Sanskrit. Yeah, and uh, we can try to trace it back even further than that, but of course, because we don't have any written records, it gets a little sketchy. If you want to try to get all the way back to Proto-Indo-European, the proto-language that all the Indo-European languages come from, uh, you can try to reconstruct that, and some etymologists have done that with this Sanskrit word, taking it back to this Proto-Indo-European word, korke, meaning gravel, or grit, or pebbles. In fact, apparently that Indo-European root shows up in another English word, which is, seems completely unrelated to what we're talking about, and that's crocodile. That comes to us from a, a Greek compound. Wait, let me guess. It has like a pebbly sort of skin to it, a crocodile? Well, that could be one theory, or you could say that the crocodiles like to hang out on riverbanks that are full of gravel or pebbles. They mm. hang out there. So the derivation of the Greek word that we get crocodile from, it's been suggested that's croquet, meaning pebbles, plus drilos, meaning worm. So it would literally mean pebble worm, where I suppose worm was this catch-all term they were using for long, thin animals, mm -hmm. um, and pebbles described where it liked to hang out. Is that a pebble worm in your... Leg clothing? Or you... <laughs> never... Hey, sugar, there's a pebble worm in my pants. <laughs> okay, well... Excuse me. Uh... Waiter, just one more, uh, please. Just one more. <laughs> All right, so well, let's figure out how you get the, uh, the sugar into, if not the pants, at least some sort of uh, fabric with that original Persian term. So we've explained the shakar part, and the first element there, the sheer means another foodstuff, but we don't have any uh, cognates in English for it. So I'll just tell you that sheer in Persian would mean milk. So literally, we're dealing with the phrase milk and sugar. Milk and sugar, milk and sugar. Nothing goes together better than milk and sugar. Milk and sugar, they do go together well. And in fact, this phrase, shiro shakar, was used by Persian language poets as a kind of a metaphor for two different things that work together well. Two great tastes that taste great together, I guess. Hmm. So it was like their version of, I don't know, chocolate and peanut butter. Or like the Simpsons uh, cartoon, nuts and gum together at last. Right. <laughs> 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 well, maybe the idea was that you mix milk and sugar into your tea and that works together well. But if you think about what seersucker looks like, if you have a sort of a mental image of it, can you think why they might call it milk and sugar? Well, the blue or the gray is milky, and the white or ecru is uh, sugary. I have no idea. <laughs> they don't seem like milk and sugar to me. Well, maybe it's more the texture. Mm, texture. Texture must play a part of it. Yeah, yeah. You've got the stripes going in seersucker, mm -hmm. and uh, generally you have a lighter stripe and a darker stripe. And those stripes can be made from sort of different fabric sources. And you could have one of them be sort of rougher than the other. 
Now, remember what sugar was like back then. Don't think of your modern table sugar. Ah, think of the sugar from the sugar the cane. contrast of the textures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got rough and smooth. And also, you know, I would imagine that you've got a color difference there, too, because that sugar in sort of the, the early methods of extracting it would leave it kind of darkish color, and that would contrast with milk as well. There were some textile processes which gave a kind of sheen to cotton. Is it possible that in seersucker it it alternates between the glazed, kind of shiny stripe and a coarser one, hence your your milk and sugar metaphor? As far as I know, the way that they would make this traditionally, this uh, fabric, it had all to do with how the threads were actually wound on the loom. There was something called slack tension weave, where you could actually have different tension for the two different kinds of fabric, And that also explains why seersucker looks kind of puckered like that. It sort of always kind of looks a little rumpled, right? Hence its suitability for wash and wear clothing. If it comes out a little bit rumpled, so much the better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the modern seersucker is manufactured in a way that imitates this old traditional method and that kind of loose weave technique ends up becoming something that machines can do. You don't need the humans to do it anymore. Hmm. See, I thought, or at least I'd like to think that when you buy a seersucker suit nowadays from, say, like Ralph Lauren or something, that it's still made by, well, maybe a child on a (laughs) loom. Uh, A child in bondage on a loom, you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, perhaps it was uh, centuries ago, but that (laughs) is no longer the case. So the British starting in the 17th century, we're getting this stuff, seersucker, and along with uh, lots of other varieties of textiles, loading up their ships and bringing them back to London. And then from London, then they could re-export all this stuff to other parts of the world, including the American colonies. All right. This is a good place to take a short break and talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses. Being a lifelong learner means that we are constantly searching for knowledge just for the pure pleasure of finding out more, which is why I recommend the great courses taught by some of the best professors around the country. I have been watching John McWhorter's lecture series called Language A to Z. The conceit of this lecture is really ingenious. He chooses a word or phrase that begins with each letter of the alphabet and uses that word or phrase as a way to talk about some linguistic or language idea or principle. The episode that I watched most recently was the one called N is for Native American English. And McWhorter talks about how the depiction of Native Americans using English in, say, The Lone Ranger or old movies, while, yes, very stereotypical and cliché, has some roots in reality. In other words, Native Americans used a kind of pidgin English that has since been termed American Indian pidgin English. And he then uses this as a way to talk about how, for example, white settlers in the New York City area used their own pidgin versions of Native American languages, for example, pidgin Delaware, and then broadens this out to talk about the whole idea of what a pidgin language is and how some pigeons evolve into bona fide languages. It's absolutely fascinating. You could get this course for 
80% off the original price if you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The Great Courses happens to be celebrating their 25th anniversary right now and are offering a special limited time 80% off offer on eight of their best-selling courses, including language A to Z. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to seersucker. What, Ben, is the earliest known use of this word in English? Well, the OED has examples going back to 1722, but I found examples going all the way back to 1694. Take that, OED. Yeah, well, I've alerted the OED so that they can include these early citations uh, in the next go-round when they come to uh, Seersucker and they revise the entry. So in 1694, what I found was a listing for cargo coming in from India to London. And this was the type of information that would be shared publicly on broadsheets or in newspapers to let people know, okay, these ships have just arrived, this is what they were carrying. So this one from November 16th, 1694, gives the cargo on board two ships, the Charles II and the Samson, and listed there among the various items were 2,057 pieces of seersucker, or they just called them seersuckers, to refer to these pieces that were brought from India to be sold in London. This is such a coincidence, Ben, because I also spend a lot of time reading the 18th century British shipping news, (laughs) (laughs) or like Deadspin. It's one or the other. (laughs) Well, I should point out there's a little uh, tricky thing here with trying to find stuff from this era, okay? This was late 17th century into the 18th century. Looking for a word that has S's in it, like seersucker. Oh, fufufs. Yeah, the long S, which looks an awful lot like an F. And the optical character recognition that's used in these scanning projects like Google Books often can't tell the difference between the long S and the F. The long S Mm -hmm. even has a little bump in the middle of it, so it can be very hard to distinguish from an F. And so I actually had better luck searching in databases for fearfucker. (laughs) Or if there was a capital S, like in this cargo listing, then you'd get the capital S and it would be Seer Fucker would be what you Mm. would have to look for. Mm. I want your job. (laughs) (laughs) Fear Fucker, Fear Fucker, fuck me some fear. Da-da-da-da. I'm sorry. (laughs) So in addition, Ben, to these uh, pieces of Fear Fucker on this ship, what else was being brought over? All of the products that would become really important to Britain because they were being brought over from India and from the East. So, you know, coffee and tea and sugar, of course. But there's also lots and lots of fabrics. I mean, more than anything else in terms of uh, listings here, we get textiles of all sorts. Things like muslins, that sort of lightweight cotton fabric, which could be used as a basis for all sorts of other things that you might do with fabric. We get things like gingham We think of that now as a kind of a checkered fabric. It might have been striped back then. Speaking of hipsters, that's the default fabric or pattern, at least, for their chest clothing. (laughs) For their chest clothing. (laughs) Gingham, I should mention, it was probably originally striped 
and comes originally from a Malay word, gingam, which meant striped. But somewhere along the line, it became checkered, and that's that's what we see today on the hipster chest, <laughs> the hipster chest clothing. <laughs> so there are all sorts of different fabric types. You know, mul mul. I'm not sure what mul mul was, but there are things like that which um, have exotic names to them, and were just you know some of the many varieties of uh, fabric that were being created in order to you know, create this trade, which, of course, the British ended up deciding that they were just going to take over for themselves, cut out the middleman, let's get some uh, cotton growing in the Caribbean or in the American colonies, and that'll be higher quality than what we're getting in India, then we'll bring that back for our mills in Manchester, and we'll make our own clothing. But it was all inspired by these uh, Eastern sources. Yeah, I mean, we really don't have any reason or need to know these sorts of various fabrics anymore because nobody we know makes our clothing anymore, right? I mean, if I just look at my own body right now, I'm wearing Gap jeans, Calvin Klein socks, (laughs) a Banana Republic shirt. Victoria's Secret thong. A Cartier (laughs) cock ring. What? (laughs) Oh, uh, sorry, did I? Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Went too far. T-M-I. You're totally commodified. I'm totally branded and commodified here. So it's like everything I'm wearing, I would just describe as 100% cotton. Well, it's interesting to think back to those days when you'd have a whole, you know, different variety very often woven in different ways like seersucker and think about the impact that it was having on the British and people in other parts of the world, like in the colonies in America, who didn't really have much variety at all. I mean, you were wearing wool, which really sucked in the hotter months. Wool's no picnic in the winter either. No. So we have the word seersucker now dated by you to the late 1600s. Yeah. And where does it go from there? It travels to America at some point. It does travel to America, and it happens pretty early on. It's impressive. In fact, the date that I was trying to beat from the OED, 1722, that actually comes from the American colonies. Oh. Yeah, so this re-export trade was big business, and, and so the 1722 example comes from a ledger item that appears in the papers of a wealthy planter named Charles Carroll, who is from Annapolis, Maryland. Annapolis back then was a very important port town. And so Charles Carroll, he has a listing of goods that he was selling to a woman, Mrs. Mary Overard. And there is a kind of a fabric called dimity. They spelled it as dimothy. There was corded dimothy that was being sold, as well as sea sucker, spelled S-E-A, sucker, dimothy probably striped, as we're familiar, with the uh, different textures to it. Mm-hmm. But the way that it was being spelled shows a little bit of folk etymology. S-E-A space sucker. See sucker. Hmm. Certainly they wouldn't know about the Indian, let alone Persian, roots of it. And, you know, uh, it was already a place where R's were getting dropped, I guess, so it would make sense that it would become see sucker and reinterpreted in this way, S-E-A sucker. You know, I'm having trouble with this image, Ben, because on the one hand, colonial America, I'm I'm picturing these men in breeches, and it doesn't quite correspond to the loose-fitting seersucker we're familiar with, you know, to the Atticus Finch look. It actually more suggests what the hipsters are doing that's so... That's what gets under my skin. So uh, what in the world were the settlers doing with the seersucker once they got it from Indra. 
You know, Bob, you're thinking of seersucker as something that just men would wear, the seersucker jacket or suit. But in the early examples there, seersucker could be worn by women as well. And in fact, there's an example from 1736, again from Annapolis. There's a report in the newspaper, the Virginia Gazette, that reports on servants fleeing an Annapolis household. And there's a servant woman who took with her a sea-sucker gown, spelled S-E-E, sucker this time. It's interesting. Actually, you know, when I looked through the newspaper databases of this era from 1730s, 1740s in the American colonies, that word seersucker or fearfucker shows up often in these accounts of runaway servants. This was a persistent issue, apparently, of the time that you would have to report on servants leaving and absconding with various things, including clothing. And so in a Philadelphia newspaper in 1737, you have an Irish servant man running away, and he has a seersucker vest lined with linen. And then in 1742, in another Philadelphia paper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, we have yet another runaway servant who had on a seersucker cap. Hmm. So it's being put to lots of uses, gowns, vests, caps. It wasn't, again, just the sort of the suit fabric that we're familiar with now. Are there any mentions in the newspapers of the time of Matlock wearing seersucker suits? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, so how do we get to Matlock? That's a good question. How do we get uh... to this, like, southern gentility (laughs) lawyer guy? (laughs) Well... I think what happens is, first of all, you eventually get the sort of the cotton production in the American South, allowing things like seersucker now to be made locally instead of having to be imported from somewhere far away. The seersucker, though, had obviously become popular enough that people wanted to make their own kind of cotton knockoffs, especially in the South, where it was very hot and it would be very nice to wear in the summer, especially before there was air conditioning. It became actually a kind of a a working man's fabric. Think of train engineers wearing seersucker outfits and seersucker caps. Mm -hmm. It was something that eventually became pretty cheap to make and, again, was useful for people who were outdoors in the heat a lot. It didn't really become something more stylish until the 20th century. It starts taking off after World War I, say in the 1920s, When you had undergraduates, especially at Princeton, apparently, it became a kind of a fashion trend to wear seersucker jackets, seersucker suits, clearly a way of kind of reappropriating this fabric that was not seen as particularly stylish up to that point and saying, okay, we're going to wear this now as sort of part of our look. There's a great quote, actually, from Damon Runyon, writing in uh, 1945. Damon Runyon, this very colorful character, in a column that he wrote for the New York Journal American, he said, I have been wearing coats of the material known as seersucker around New York lately, thereby causing much confusion among my friends. They know that seersucker is very cheap, and they cannot reconcile its lowly status in the textile world with the character of Runyon, King of the Dudes. Nice appearance of the word dude. (laughs) The dude abides. He certainly did. I mean, Damon Runyon is using it very much in that original sense of dude as the dandy, right? Mm -hmm. So if he's calling himself king of the dudes, he had this kind of dandy persona that he was working. But then his friends are like, wait, you're a dude, but you're wearing seersucker? That doesn't make any sense because that's what poor people wear. And so Runyon says, they cannot decide whether I am broke or just setting a new vogue. 
He went on to say that a man wearing a seersucker suit could cash a check all over town with no questions asked because he said that, well, if you're self-confident enough to wear seersucker, you must be affluent. A poor person would not make his poverty so apparent. So you must be rich if you have no problem walking around wearing seersucker. Oh, gosh, it's sort of like the fashion vogue of, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago when I remember hipsters wearing, say, shirts that they would buy at thrift stores of gas station attendants, you know, with a name like Gus on it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The trucker hat. The trucker right, hat. or the trucker yeah. hat. Yeah, exactly. So the seersucker was becoming popular through perhaps it was a kind of a reverse snobbery or slumming it, whatever you want to call it, even in 1945 when Damon Runyon was sporting that look. And then after World War II, that's when you get it becoming really more of a fashion statement and also something that was more widely available because there were companies that were making this sort of wash-and-wear seersucker. There was a lot of demand apparently in the southern states. And so, again, you can sort of imagine it becoming something that was emblematic of the southern gentleman. Aha. And may I just jump in to say, Ben, that now it makes me angry whenever it's worn, either by ostentatious hipsters wearing it very tight, or on the other side of things, by the ultra prep, the mega prep, who I, you know, I just see that if they're wearing seersucker, it's anti-Semitic. Whoa. <laughs> That's a lot to read into some uh, striped fabric there, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps I've told you more about me than I have about the fabric, but nonetheless, I actually do get gimlet-eyed when I see someone clad in seersucker nowadays. And and I've got some in my history. I got some in my history. Are you saying that Matlock is anti-Semitic? Is that what you're implying? I think when I see it in the South, I'm less judgmental. But when I get on the metro in Washington and I see some lawyer in a seersucker suit, I just think he's probably going to work for <laughs> ExxonMobil. You know, I have some vague memory of a senator from the South, I don't know, Mississippi, oh yeah, Arkansas, Missouri. I think it was probably a joke, but submitting some kind of bill to outlaw seersucker suits. Outlaw? Oh, I hadn't heard of that. I, I know that there was actually a seersucker club in the U.S. Senate where uh, senators, particularly Southern senators, would get together and wear seersucker. I don't know about any efforts to ban it, though. I remember Senator Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> right. was in that club. <laughs> well, I think on the basis that it was maybe just... Missouri Senator proposes ban on seersucker suits. Oh, April there you go. 2013. Missouri Senator Ryan McKenna. Wait. Oh, a state oh. senator. Okay. Yeah, must be. Here's Here was his quote. Any person living in the state aged eight and under may wear seersucker suits at their leisure. Any person <laughs> over the age of eight living in the state may not wear seersucker suits wow. because adults look ridiculous in seersucker suits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you want to weigh in on the sartorial merits of seersucker Please do so. Drop us a line at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Oh, and please, we are closing in on 1,000 iTunes reviews. We have something like 950 of them. So if you haven't already, go to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and leave us a review. Uh, I want to thank Ben Zimmer. He is the executive editor of Vocabulary.com. 
where his column this week will have much more on the word seersucker. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, guys, we done here? Yeah, we're done. Laters, Gators. Hi, I'm Noah Michelson, one of the hosts of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. That was good, guy. Every other week, my co-hosts, Karina Clodney and I, start with a single question. Like, what's it really like to take part in an orgy? Or is it even still possible to find love without the help of the internet? On our May 7th show, we'll dive headfirst into the world of sugar babies, sugar daddies, and sugar mamas. We'll explore everything from the perks of being a sugar baby to what exactly the daddies and mamas are getting out of this kind of a relationship. And is there any truth to the claim that this is just a fancy form of sex work? Leave your inhibitions behind and download and subscribe to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Bye.